This is the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast. I'm Monique Mitchelson, and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Livock, and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. This is a podcast where we center and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. So we've talked a lot about autism and ADHD. Today, we're going to talk about the learning disorders and how that impacts people who are neurodivergent. Yeah, so I'm really actually excited about this topic today. Um, Obviously, when people think about neurodiversity, the first thing that comes to mind is often autism or ADHD. Um, But all these kind of smaller, I guess, in certain ways or um, more niche uh, differences are also representative of, you know, a neurodiverse brain or just different ways that the brain can be set up. So um, we're going to start today just going through the learning disorders. So we've got dyslexia, dysgraphia, dyspraxia, and dyscalculia. Um, most people will probably have heard of dyslexia, and maybe that's it. So I guess first thing to say when it comes to um, learning disorders is that just like most um, diagnostic labels, it is actually a little bit misnamed. So when we think of something being a learning disorder um, or, you know, I have a learning disorder, it sort of carries with it the connotation that uh, you can't learn, right? But actually all it's saying is that you have difficulty learning in this one particular way. So I wanted to start by talking about dyslexia and dysgraphia. So most people would know that dyslexia is a reading difficulty and dysgraphia is like its brother. (laughs) Mm. Dysgraphia is a writing difficulty. So kind of different forms, but they usually come from the same place. So whenever I talk about dyslexia and dysgraphia with clients, I think the first most important thing to flag is that writing is an invention. It's not an innate skill that we are born with. As humans, we invented writing as a form of communication. And what's interesting about that is there's not only one uh, form that writing can take. So in English, we use an alphabetic-based writing system, um, but there's other forms of writing systems as well. So we can have logographic um, or syllabaries. So alphabetic and logographic are probably the most common. With an alphabetic writing system, um, that's, you know, English, French, German, uh, most of the Latin-based languages, um, that's where we use symbols. So symbols just being letters or letter groupings. You know, letters are really just squiggles on a page when you think about it. Um, So we use symbols to represent distinct speech sounds. So um, K, B, F, you know. um, R, E, U, E. Um, so in English, for instance, um, you know, the letter C represents the K sound or sometimes the S sound, right? English is actually a bizarre language, um, when it comes to our our writing system. Um, you know, the letter grouping TH represents the F sound. So those speech sounds are also called phonemes. Um, they're just kind of the, the, uh, broken down sounds that we use in speech. 
The other major writing system, as I mentioned, is logographic. So this is systems like Chinese, for instance. So logographic systems, uh, rather than using a symbol to represent each phoneme in a word, they actually use symbols to represent whole words or concepts. Um, so rather than kind of learning a phonetic code as we do in English, and then, you know, if you come across a word that you don't know, you're supposed to use that code to help you sort of work out how to pronounce or read that word. Um, logographic sim uh, writing systems are just based on actually memorizing a whole bunch of different characters. So if you don't know the character, then you don't know it right? You can't really work it out, you know, by using a code. Um, so it's really interesting, this difference, you know, between the logographic system and the alphabetic system, because actually what we see is that people who are um, diagnosed with dyslexia in logographic writing systems versus people who speak, um, you know, alphabetic languages, they actually have completely different things going on neurologically. Mm. Most things that we would classify as a disorder, uh, think of as a disorder, is actually quite culturally specific. So with people who have dyslexia in alphabetic-based systems, the issue is breaking down words into their speech sounds. So people who are dyslexic, say in English, um, it's not an automatic um, immediate process to just know, for instance, the word cat is made up of the sounds k, a, t, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously, they can get there, but it's a more cognitively demanding process. And then the other side of that is breaking down that uh, sound in, sorry, the word into speech sounds, and then automatically knowing what squiggle, so what letter, um, represents that speech sound, right? So looking at a page, seeing the squiggles C, A, and T, and knowing immediately what sounds those squiggles represent. In logographic systems, so, you know, Chinese, for instance, the issue for people who have dyslexia isn't anything to do with actually breaking words into their speech sounds. It's visual memory-based stuff. Mm. It's being able to represent uh, concepts and ideas and words symbolically, mm -hmm. visually. So, you know, we call both of those things dyslexia for expediency, right? It's like a reading or, you know, writing issue. But it's actually two completely different things going on. Yeah. Um, and I think you found a really interesting study that even looked at the difference in people's brains mm. between the two different cultures and countries with dyslexia. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly what they found, right? So in people who have dyslexia um, in, um, you know, alphabetic-based systems, the uh, issue, and I use that word with some trepidation, is, you know, it's the difference, I guess, um, in the brain of yeah, someone who has dyslexia in an English-speaking or alphabetic-speaking system um, is in a region of the brain that is responsible for breaking down words into those speech sounds. Whereas, exactly as I said, um, people in uh, you know native Chinese speakers, their issue is much more with the visual memory areas of their brain. So that raises a really interesting point um, for me when we think about you know whether something is a problem. Again, we are getting back to this idea of something is only a problem by virtue of the environment that it's in, mm. right? So uh, someone who might be diagnosed with dyslexia in an alphabetic language-based system 
might be completely fine <laughs> if they grew up in a logographic writing mm-hmm. system and vice versa, right? That's it. I'm moving to China. <laughs> <laughs> I love that for you, Monique. <laughs> so um, in that study that uh, we were mentioning, the prevalence of dyslexia in um, America versus in China, so they were the populations that they used, um, in America it was about 15% and in China it was about 7%. Um, so, you know, make of that what you will. Um, but I think the phonetic-based reading system actually uh, requires a lot more processes in the brain mm. rather than a visual-based reading system. And actually often what I find in dyslexia assessments for children, this is not always the case, um, but it comes up often enough, is that children who have dyslexia um, often rely on that kind of visual look of the word. They have a really hard time applying uh, phonetic decoding skills. Mm. um, And they're kind of compensating for that by just almost memorizing what the word looks like. So their brains are almost like, well, let's just pretend we are in a logographic (laughs) system. Um, And sometimes that's effective. But as we said before, English is actually an incredibly complex language when it comes to reading and writing, like spelling rules. It's Mm. very strange. Um, So sometimes you just have to know the code and you have to know the rules. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So we chatted a bit about dyslexia. Um, Dysgraphia is, uh, as I mentioned, more about difficulties with writing. And it's essentially the same process, but just in reverse, um, you know, compared to dyslexia. Dysgraphia happens when we're struggling to break down a word into its speech sounds, um, to know what letters represent that sound, and then to send that information to our motor planning and motor control centers to actually write the word right? So for people who don't have dysgraphia, that process happens automatically without even thinking about it, right? So if I was to write the word cat, um, I immediately in a microsecond have done heaps of processes. Firstly, I have thought about the concept of a cat. I've known, you know, what a cat is. Then my brain has supplied for me that the word that represents that concept is cat, my brain has also behind the scenes broken that word down into k, a, and t. And then it's also supplied for me the squiggles that represent those sounds. And if I was to write that word down, it would just as quickly and just as automatically transfer that information to my motor planning center, and then I could write the word. So is dysgraphia um, like where someone has an understanding of what they're learning? Um, they know what it is, but they just have trouble writing it down. And so, for example, maybe writing an essay at school would be really difficult for them, even though they have all the know-how, all the intelligence. Um, it's just getting it out. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, absolutely. And, and if we're looking at a pure dysgraphia, um, that's often what we see, right? I can verbally tell you everything I want to say. I know what I want to say, but when I'm actually sitting down with the pen in my hand, um, it's like a block. Mm. And that's how our clients with dysgraphia will continuously describe it, right? I'm sitting there and I get a block. And what's going on kind of neurologically when we're experiencing that block is all those kind of um, micro tasks and activities that the brain has to do, it's not doing it automatically. Mm -hmm. And so what that often means is that 
our working memory space. So we talked a bit about working memory, I think, in previous episodes. It's basically our mental bench space um, becomes super cluttered because unlike someone who doesn't have dysgraphia, um, really none of that has to be on the mental bench space, Mm -hmm. right? The only thing on your bench space, if you don't have any issues um, with the process of reading or writing, is the content, Mm -hmm. the concepts, right? Mm -hmm. The sentence that I want to say. If I have dysgraphia, I've got to hold the sentence that I want to say in my mind. And then I've also got to hold all of that information about phonemes, letter representations, how they fit together, how sounds change depending on other sounds in the word. That's a lot. Mm. And so often they're just like, F this, <laughs> no, I'm out, right? And I won't write and it yeah. feels like a block. So um, when we um, support, uh, say, a child at school with dysgraphia, uh, obviously part of that is about getting our writing skills to a functional level, you know, because like it or not, we do live in an alphabetic system and we do have to be able to read and write at mm-hmm. a functional level, you know, mm-hmm. to get by in society. Um So getting those skills to a functional level and then using assistive technology compensatory strategies. So Mm -hmm. like typing or voice to text, Mm -hmm. I often find um, breaking down the process of writing into its subcomponents can be really helpful. So for instance, it might be, okay, firstly, I want you to use voice to text to just say everything you want to say, right? Get it out, just word vomit on the paper. Secondly, We're going to go through and edit that paragraph or that sentence, you know, depending on how young the kid is, um, to make sure it actually says what we want it to say. You know, Mm -hmm. don't worry about spelling, grammar, you know, any of that at this point. We're just kind of structurally, is this what we want to say? Mm -hmm. Then next step, then we go through, correct for spelling, correct for grammar, correct for punctuation. Mm -hmm. So it's a step-by-step-by-step process rather than trying to do all of those things at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in adulthood, usually we just end up typing, which is totally fair. But even if you are an adult um, who does have dysgraphia, you can still kind of break those processes down for yourself, right? So mm-hmm. writing an email, for instance, you might um, do essentially do that, right? Voice to text. Mm-hmm. This is what I want to say in the email. Then I'm going to go through and edit it rather yeah. than trying to make it perfect as you're actually writing it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, well, the other learning disorder that comes up a lot is dyscalculia. Mm -hmm. So dyscalculia is another one of these uh, diagnoses that not many people have actually heard about. Dyscalculia is a maths learning disorder. So people who have dyscalculia have a lot of difficulty having an intuitive kind of instinctual understanding of what we call quantitative reasoning or quantitative concepts. So um, for littler kids, for instance, it might be um, really needing to kind of use their fingers to do a lot of maths because having that just immediate automatic understanding, for instance, that five is more than two, that's not immediate. I need to see a visual representation of that. If I can see it, then I get that. It's just that concept doesn't really just gel with the way that they think about things. Um, So people with dyscalculia really need a lot of um, physical manipulatables to kind of understand the relationship between quantitative concepts. And they can understand it, absolutely, if they can see it. Mm -hmm. But if it's just holding that in mind, it's often quite tricky. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's really interesting because um, I reckon I might actually have dyscalculia um, because, yeah, I pretty much plateaued in my maths ability at a grade three level. (laughs) (laughs) So as soon as we started learning about fractions, Uh it was just like a block. Like, I don't know what this is. I don't know how this works. And um, you know, like even in high school, I did do maths B, um, but struggled so much to even get like a passing grade. Yeah. Um, right. But in all my other subjects, getting A's. Yeah. You know, so just. That's interesting. And I, I liked your example there of fractions, because that's actually a really good example for people with dyscalculia. Mm-hmm. Um, because to understand fractions, yeah, you really have to be able to comprehend and sort of intuitively get um you know the quantitative difference for instance between a fifth and a third um and understand you know what's bigger what's smaller Mm -hmm. and often people have dyscalculia uh really struggle with that concept of you know even though um two is less than five Mm -hmm. a half is actually bigger than a fifth yeah if that makes sense. Yeah. No, so, it doesn't. <laughs> you're like, this is the whole My mind's checked out already. Yeah. Like. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, you know, that difference between less than, more than, and bigger, smaller, um, you know, in that kind of more more complicated um, mm. framework of fractions. Well, like with baking, you right. know, when you're like putting things in the cups to put in your cake, like, oh, one third of a cup, half a cup. It's easy because it's that visual representation you know that's a really great example yeah but yeah even for me like in my psychology degree everything to do with psychology was super easy because that's my special interest but the statistics subjects right actually failed um my statistics subjects in my first year and did you really yeah and i had to repeat it um and i put so much effort and hard work into studying and i still barely passed mm. and then you know just glad that um obviously understanding research is important but um i'm just glad that i have a job where i don't really yeah. use maths <laughs> i just yeah. use a calculator for whatever Absolutely. i need to do <laughs> yeah and that's a really good point about the calculator because People who have dyscalculia, and again, another accommodation that we might put in place in schools, is actually being able to use a calculator. If you're spending so much time and effort trying to um, work out the kind of um, base maths, Mm. that's not leaving any mental space left over for the actual concepts that are trying to be taught Mm. or, um, you know, the more complex stuff. Um, So where we can kind of assist with that through calculators uh, Mm. can be really helpful. Yeah, like I even had a tutor and everything for maths and it didn't help one bit. Like different tutors, nothing worked. And Mm. I I didn't beat myself up about it because for me, I was like, well, any maths I need to do in the real world, like I'm not going to do a maths degree or anything like that. I'm going to be able to use a calculator to get what I need. So that's actually fascinating what you were saying then about how you don't really beat yourself up about struggling with maths because you're kind of like, eh, it's not really going to impact me um, long term. And we actually often hear that, you know, people who are um, bad at maths, quote unquote, such a cultural narrative, right? Like, oh, I'm so terrible at maths. Um, But unlike people who have dyslexia or dysgraphia, people who have dyscalculia or who even just struggle at a, you know, subclinical level with maths, it's almost like a quirky personality trait. Whereas people who have dyslexia, dysgraphia um, often just internalize so much shame 
about it. This means I'm stupid. Yeah. yeah. And I think you get um, negative feedback um, mm. from society and from others like, oh, you can't even read or you can't yeah. write. And it's assumed that you're not intelligent then. Yes. But people can actually have really high intelligence and have dyslexia or dysgraphia. Absolutely. And the shame that comes around struggling with reading and writing um, is massive, I think. Mm. And that often gets carried well into adulthood mm. um, and potentially completely unfounded mm -hmm. the belief that I'm stupid. Mm. I just don't get things. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And it, I think it takes a lot to really undo that and mm. all those negative experiences, particularly in the school environment. And then when you leave school, um, often things get a lot better. Yeah. So yeah. just get through school, <laughs> survive high school. That's the main goal. Yes. Um, and then life really improves after that. Yeah. So just an interesting little side note as well is a lot of people um, on the spectrum um, or ADHDs also sometimes have the desire or the ability to read early. Um, and that's something that I actually had. Mm. Um, so I was reading at a really high, um, I guess, level for my age. Um, but what that meant is that I actually didn't learn how to pronounce words properly <laughs> until like high school or much later on um, yeah. because not actually hearing those words used in day-to-day -day life. Mm -hmm. So like the word subtle, mm -hmm. you know, it's S-U-B. T-L-E, and I would say subtle. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> and then it, like, wasn't until high school where um, my friends uh, would actually point out um, it's not pronounced that way, Monique, that I actually learned, oh, <laughs> all these words I've been saying aren't actually what they are supposed to sound like. <laughs> yeah, That's so funny. Brains can get very noisy. I tend to go through phases in what's most helpful in quieting that noise and recentering. And at the moment, I've been gravitating towards music and soundscapes, slowly making my way through a huge library on the Calm app. And I've been trying to get better at having a more peaceful morning routine. And I've definitely found that the morning playlists really help a lot with that, actually. Yeah, I think most people think of meditation as the only way we can ground ourselves and quiet our brain, but sound and music are actually so helpful. What's really cool about the music and sound library on Calm is the variety. They've got playlists for times of the day and certain moods, soundscapes, and even alpha wave and bilateral stimulation tracks, which can be incredibly effective at helping you to emotionally regulate and getting your brain in a sleep-ready state. For sure. My favourites at the moment are the Disney soundscapes. So they've got things like an evening in Jasmine's garden, Merida's mystical Scottish forest, um, as well as other ones that you'd expect, like rolling thunderstorms and the like. The Calm app puts the tools that you need to feel better in your back pocket. If you go to calm.com forward slash neuro, you'll get a special offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription. And new content is added every week. For listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com forward slash neuro. Go to calm.com slash neuro for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com forward slash neuro. 
<laughs> I'm so glad you brought that up, actually, because it reminds me that um, just like we can have dyslexia, uh, we can actually also have um, what's called hyperlexia. Mm-hmm. Right. And so just like dyslexia is for, you know, alphabetic based languages, dyslexia is, um, you know, difficulties kind of automatically understanding the phonetic code and applying that. Hyperlexia is the opposite where um, your brains find it extremely easy and intuitive to kind of break down words for their phonemes um, and apply that phonetic code. Um, and so we might get kiddos who uh, actually have an incredibly high reading level. You know, they might be reading books at two or three. Mm. And uh, what's important to say about that too is actually, again, that doesn't say anything about intelligence. Mm. I feel like in our society, we often conflate reading ability with intelligence. Mm. And if you are a good reader, that means you're super smart. And if you're a terrible reader, that means you're dumb. And if you want to spend all your time reading books, that means, oh, you're so creative and, you know, you're you're so clever and studious. And if you don't want to spend all your time reading books, then you're not those things. Mm. I love books. (laughs) I love reading. But being a good or a bad reader doesn't say anything about how good you are as a person. Mm, I think that's such a good point because I do feel like there is a lot of Um, morality Mm. sort of um, linked in with all of this stuff like what you're saying it's it's somehow like a character flaw you know if you can't read or do certain things when that's actually not the truth yeah exactly and I wonder too and this is this is not based on anything this is just my musings um, I wonder too if you know the history of particularly in you know western sort of English-based societies um, the history of what we deemed appropriate pastimes for women um, sort of impacts that right mm. women uh, were virtuous and, and moral and valuable as human beings if they engaged in quiet pastimes Mm. um women who were more boisterous or were interested in doing that um well they were immoral in Mm. some way Mm. um and you know i think we've got a lot more acceptance as a society for boys who don't want to sit down and be still and do quiet pastimes than we do for girls Mm. yeah i think that's a really good point So moving on to dyspraxia, dyspraxia is a movement coordination disorder. It's essentially when the messages from your brain about, you know, different motoric movements you might take have a lot of difficulty being transmitted to your motor planning centers. So actually planning and sequencing and structuring those movements. So it can affect um, lots of different areas. Um, A lot of people or a lot of kids who are first diagnosed with dyspraxia get diagnosed because they have speech dyspraxia. So rather than uh, dyspraxia of speech being a language issue, it's actually purely a speech issue. Mm. So um, the child or the individual might Uh, have complete understanding and awareness of what they want to say and in their head the sentence is a complete sentence that's Mm -hmm. meaningful um, and has kind of appropriate grammatical markers and and sentence structure Um, but 
in planning the motoric movements of the jaw, the tongue, the mouth in creating those sounds, that's where the breakdown occurs. Mm. So we get lots of pronunciation issues um, and that can take a number of different forms, but it's basically the issue is with speech, not Mm -hmm. with language. And is that where you would go and see someone like a speech pathologist? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So speech path can definitely help with that stuff, Mm. um, working on um, those kind of skills. Dyspraxia can also affect uh, other types of motor planning. So, you know, our fine motor skills, gross motor skills. If it's having a bigger impact on our fine and gross motor control, that actually tends to be uh, less likely to be picked up than if it's affecting speech. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of makes sense, you know, if a child's really struggling to articulate their sounds and words, that's pretty clear. Um, but if they're a bit clumsy um, mm-hmm. or they're really struggling with their fine motor skills, that's often more, you know, oh, well, we'll see how it goes. And mm-hmm. they're just like a bit of a clumsy person. Mm. So people with dyspraxia, um, particularly if it's outside of that sort of speech area, tend to be quite uncoordinated, um, (laughs) quite clumsy, um, and difficulty kind of doing uh, intricate sort of fine motor tasks. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, as we age and we get older, all of these skills develop and improve because, you know, a a two-year-old, no matter what neurotype you have, is pretty crap at fine motor (laughs) skills. Uh, A 50-year-old is a lot better, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have dyspraxia, uh, the form that that's going to look like will be very different when you're an adult compared to what it might have looked like when you were a child. Um, But essentially, it's that difficulty kind of coordinating, sequencing or planning motor movements. So is that sort of things like learning how to tie up your shoelaces? Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. And like buttoning up your shirt, yep. those sorts of things. Even like feeding yourself potentially. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So it has a pretty um, you know, pervasive sort of impact across a lot of those functional skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and often what we might see in kids is that if they have dyspraxia, particularly if it's affecting their fine motor skills, we just get a lot of frustration, which is completely understandable. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, why well, don't want to engage in this task Mm -hmm. right and as with you know lots of things it's a bit of a bi-directional street Mm -hmm. it's hard so i want to practice it less so Mm -hmm. i get i'm worse at it Mm -hmm. and round and round we go um so occupational therapists can help a lot with that Mm -hmm. and i would suggest if you do have a child who you suspect might have dyspraxia um the earlier you can get some support with that the better because Mm -hmm. exactly as we're saying you know a lot of these skills are quite um, impactful across mm-hmm. a lot of our, you know, functional areas of our life. Um, handwriting as well. Mm-hmm. This is where some of the overlap between some of these things come. Mm-hmm. So dysgraphia, a child who's struggling with write, with writing might be having difficulty because of a dysgraphia, you know, mm-hmm. difficulty with the phonological processing of writing, or they might have difficulty planning the motor movements that mm-hmm. are necessary for creating, you know, the words or the letters. Mm-hmm. In terms of gross motor uh, stuff that dyspraxia impacts, um, anything that involves multiple parts of your body, so hand-eye coordination. Not the bloody ball sports. Yeah. Oh, dear. I know. And as I'm kind of going through this, it's funny. You were like, oh, I think I might have dyscalculia. I'm like, maybe I have dyspraxia. <laughs> no, I think I'm just very uncoordinated. Yeah. <laughs> um, Does accidentally bumping into walls while you're walking into stuff count? <laughs> well, it's actually so interesting that you mentioned that, Monique. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, Guys, this is just my musings, somewhat based on research, but also somewhat not. Um, 
I was born via cesarean section. Mm. Were, were you? Or? No, okay. natural birth. Yeah. All right. So then my theory goes out the window. <laughs> but, oh, well. <laughs> yeah. So what I was going to say is that um, research has found that kids who are born via cesarean, uh, sorry, um, vaginal birth, um, that kind of process of exiting the vaginal canal um, is really helpful in actually um, supporting that kind of interhemispheric, so left mm. side, right side connections, and their proprioceptive skills. So proprioception mm. is basically knowing where our body is in space. So right? is that like as you descend through the birth canal, um, I've heard that like the the proprioceptive, I guess, experience of that is that um, obviously stuff's pressing on mm. you, you're feeling pressure, mm-hmm. you're getting molded yeah. all through that. And so are you saying like that helps develop those areas potentially yeah exactly so Mm. um yeah so it has been shown that uh kids who are born um vaginally Mm. uh tend to have better proprioceptive skills so Mm -hmm. they're a bit more aware of where their body is in space Mm -hmm. so i was born by c-section and i'm constantly bumping into things Mm. um but you also are monique and you're born vaginally (laughs) so damn it well, that's interesting because um, my mum grew up in England in a, a city urban environment and she has a lot of difficulty like orientating herself to space and mm. like d- getting directions and bumping into things and she isn't very physically coordinated. Um, but then like I grew up on acreage um, up north and like my entire childhood was spent wandering around in the forest climbing trees climbing rocks um so i think that actually really that continual practice really helped me develop some of those skills but i'm still terrible at ball sports (laughs) well exactly and it's such a fantastic point uh to illustrate that marriage and the balance between um, our sort of genetic blueprint Mm. or you know the things that might have impacted uh, these areas of our brain and experience Mm -hmm. and it's not a one-way street Mm. you know they both impact each other right Mm. perhaps if i had grown up in a country area and had lots of um, experiences related to that um that stuff would be a bit different for me Mm. right as human beings we're all just a patchwork quilt of all these different factors coming Mm. together to make us who we are um and you know sometimes we actually never know the reason Mm. for something Mm. because there probably isn't one reason absolutely it's like a whole series of interlocking factors Mm. Mm. so i think we've covered um the main learning difficulties that people who are neurodivergent might experience um but i think just one last point before we close um the episode today is that a lot of these neurodivergences often overlap and can occur together. So a lot of people who are autistic or ADHDs often do experience um, some of these learning differences as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and and we see that all the time kind mm. of in the diagnostic space. Mm, yeah, definitely. So thanks so much for tuning in, guys. Uh, make sure to check out and like our Facebook and Instagram pages. Um, and in our next episode, we are going to be diving into differences in perceptual awareness and perceptual experiences. So tune in to hear more. And don't forget to check out our change.org petition to help people with an adult diagnosis of ADHD access fair and equal treatment and medication under the PBS. You can find the petition on our Facebook and Instagram pages.